Hello, everyone. This is another episode of the Unisoft question, and I have another really good special guest uh, here with me today. I have Barry Glassball, uh, a uh, famed class actions lawyer, famed Canadian class actions lawyer here with me today. How many years uh, were you a BLG partner, Barry? Uh, 20 years. 20 years. Um, I just saw uh, BLG 25-year tribute video to you on YouTube, uh, and uh, I think the consensus is that you are a genius professor from Gilligan's Island. That, that was the uh, metaphor that people used. Uh, what, 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 do you think, what do you think made them uh, compare you to a genius professor? And that was pretty much consistent. Smart, genius, very smart, knows everything. Right. I have no, no idea. Um, (laughs) Not, not really. Uh, It may be just uh, partly just the background and, and uh, how you're brought up and the way of approaching a problem, but no, I don't really, that was Marcus Kramer. I really don't know. Uh, You'd have to ask Marcus for his view on that. I worked with him for years on class action. So. I want to dig a little bit deeper into your origins to find out how uh, smart people like you are made and what they are made of. Uh, where are you originally from? Uh, so I'm from Oshawa and I was uh, uh, raised on a dairy farm. My dad uh, had about, uh, we milked about 80 cows, Holsteins. Uh, then we had sheep and uh, we grew apples, potatoes, uh, I had, we had chickens, rabbits, that sort of thing. So it was a, a mixed uh, dairy farm and, and a quite a bit of work. So that was how I was uh, brought up. So it was outside Oshawa. I was really just on the border of Oshawa and, and on the north side of Oshawa. People who are from Oshawa, at least in uh, modern times, tend to say that they're from Toronto. You don't say that. I was definitely not from Toronto. <laughs> I was barely from Oshawa, but I, I, I did go to, uh, into high school in Oshawa and I guess senior public school, but I was brought up on a farm. So uh, Oshawa, particularly that time, was a GM city for sure. And uh, still is to some degree, but it's more diversified now. And, and it, it's obviously changed quite a bit. At what age did you leave the farm? Well, when I, so I went to university and so uh, basically once I'd done university, I guess that's when I would have left the farm. I was still going back on the weekends and uh, uh, in the summer, but uh, it, it's going to university. And I had uh, two older brothers and they were both on the farm. So there was kind of limited space as well, I suppose. Did you really want to leave the farm? Was it your dream? Uh, not, not really. I, I love the farm. Uh, and uh, so, so no, there was no particular dream uh, of, uh, of leaving the farm. It, it's a lot of work for sure. Uh, but uh, I had a very close connection with the farm. Where did you go to university? Yes, I went to, I went to U of T. I uh, did uh, commerce. Uh, and that was like in high school, I kind of did accounting and math and sciences. So I decided to go into commerce and I did become. And, uh, commerce, why commerce? You came from the farm. 
was commerce just a general sure sort of choice i think another guest of the show did his uh bachelor's in commerce andrew bernstein of tories if i'm not mistaken he'll forgive me if i'm wrong but i think we had that conversation with him yeah i just i uh, enjoyed it so i did accounting in high school i i actually loved accounting and so when I went uh, in the BCom, I did accounting theory. I was just really interested in that. Um, I worked one summer at Cooper's Library, I guess between third and fourth year. And uh, kind of my trajectory was to go into, uh, into the auditing program and to become uh, a, 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 a chartered accountant, what they called a chartered accountant at that time. And the thought of becoming a lawyer, did it ever cross your mind before law school? Not really, no. And even after law school, but before law school. <laughs> before law school. Uh, so when I finished um, the commerce program, I was, I, I was looking at doing an MBA in the States, uh, but I didn't get accepted into kind of the what I viewed as the premier programs or they give acceptance with defer, like a deferral. And so I was doing, looking at MBAs and then I also uh, was, uh, then I looked at law. And uh, so basically I, I wrote the last LSAT in my fourth year. And uh, then I did go to law school. And you went to law school at UFT as well? Went to U of T. I was looking between Osgood and U of T. Uh, Osgood was was offering at that time money to go, and so that was nice. Uh, but in the end, I I decided to go to U of T. So how did you land on this blue chip path for every elite lawyer in Canada? So U of T Law, Supreme Court of Canada clerk elite law firm how did you land on that path yeah i don't know so you i guess you i guess you already appreciate that neither my father nor my mother went to university like my father didn't finish high school he he for crop reasons he couldn't finish high school uh so there was i didn't have any pressure to do i didn't have any pressure actually to do anything i was kind of making my own decisions but i didn't have this helicopter parent saying you should do this or that um, I guess I was just deciding along the way what seemed to be uh, the most attractive thing. Uh, I really just went to U of T because people were saying at that time that that was the place to go. That, and so, so I was just following advice, I'd say, along the way from others uh, at, at, at law school. You know, you, you kind of jumped ahead to doing the clerkship, but the, at law school, I did well, and, and then it, it, uh, so things kind of lead from one thing to another, I guess, for that. That's right. But uh, you also showed some propensity for academic work. You did uh, your LLB at UFT, and then you did two LLMs, one in Cambridge uh, in, uh, in the UK and the other one uh, at Harvard, correct? Yeah, LLM squared. Yeah, so uh, so I did went to Harvard first, and I was in the same class as uh, as Justice Myers, who you interviewed, and and so I I, I met him there. Um, uh, so Harvard, as as Justice Myers says, is a great experience. Um, when I 
and I was doing constitutional law essentially there, um, US constitutional law. I developed an interest in doing uh, public international law. And so I got funding to do a, a PhD uh, at Cambridge. And so basically I was heading off to Cambridge the following year to do uh, three years. Uh, and, but I was at the same time, I was in my ninth year of university and I was getting a bit uh, drained, I probably of university. So I did convert, I, I didn't do the, the PhD uh, at Cambridge uh, and I just did a single year. So that's how I ended up doing an L, like the two LMs. I did it in public international law. Uh, so so and that was just an incredible experience at Cambridge. Uh, and, um, and so that's how I ended up doing two LLMs. While I was at Cambridge, that was when I, and having decided I wasn't going to finish the PhD or do a PhD, uh, I, was, I was then able to get a, a clerking job with Justice Asti uh, at that time. So then having got that job, I then traveled for a year. Because having been brought up on the farm, like we didn't go anywhere, uh, we just worked all the time. And you have to picture we get it. We we started. A, we we milked the cows before we go to school. We milked the cows and cleaned the barn. After school, we worked all the time uh, uh, on the weekends. And so uh, I had this. By this point, I had a kind of a. If you're talking about dreams, I had a travel dream. I did not have a dream about being a lawyer. Some people want to become a judge, want to be a lawyer, but my dream was to travel uh, because I hadn't been at really very many places. And so I took a year to travel at that point. Uh, and I went to uh, Asia and Africa. Uh, and so that was a great experience. And then I came back and did the clerkship with Justice Esty. And then you went to a big law firm and then you milked proverbial cows at BLG for 26 years. I guess, I guess that was a, a, a very hard job, not uh, easier than uh, farm work. Uh, well, um, it, it's, um, it's similar. There's similarities, I suppose, in terms of the discipline that you need and, and the rigor. Uh, I went to uh, what was then Borden and Elliott, which became BLG because of uh, Dennis O'Connor, uh, and um, who, who then later became the Associate Chief Justice, as you know. Uh, and so, so I, I had the privilege to work with Dennis and his group uh, for uh, seven or eight years. Uh, Dennis was doing a general counsel uh, work. He was he was the go-to person, go-to litigator uh, for uh, almost any significant litigation issue, um, and so that was a great experience. And that's how I ended up at at, uh, at Borden Elliott or BLG. Uh, as part of that, I started to do uh, be involved in class actions. But the other thing I did was uh, I was in it was also in the health law group, and so I was doing uh, defending medical malpractice claims, and and so um, these two kind of gelled together, and basically I ended up defending uh, hospitals and class actions. Like that was a huge part of my practice ultimately. Is it true that everyone on uh, the Dennis O'Connor team at BLG clerked at the Supreme Court of Canada? Uh, there, no, 
they, there, there were uh, a, a few lawyers who had not uh, clerked, but it was a, it was a great group of uh, people. Mostly, uh, mostly the uh, we were clerks. A lot of us were clerks, uh, and and now uh, a, a lot of the group have become judges. Um, uh, so, but it was it was a great group to work with. You had uh, fantastic mentors in you know in your career. Correct. You clerked at the Supreme Court. You uh, were mentored by a Supreme Court judge. You uh, worked on Dennis O'Connor's team. You had other teachers and mentors. You received impeccable, uh, excellent training at your firm. Times are different now, so. I think we talked about that with Justice Myers. A lot of fresh blood uh, is coming to the profession who choose to start their own firms and who for one reason or another don't go through the training at uh, established firms. Maybe established firms don't need as many lawyers anymore. Maybe uh, there are other reasons, but this is the fact today, the fact of this profession. And do you think that it affects the quality of lawyers in any way? Do you think that this cohort of lawyers has the same chance to do great work as lawyers who are trained by uh, the greats, by Supreme Court of Canada judges, by esteemed litigators, and so on? Okay. Um, yeah, I don't think there's a single, I, I do agree with everything you're saying. I don't think there's a single answer. I, I do believe that people can start on their own and become great lawyers. And, and uh, they, they find the mentoring in other ways. Uh, they do things like you're doing. Uh, they, there's different ways of doing it. We had a, an elite experience. This is what you went back to at the beginning. How did a guy from a farm end up with this elite experience? Uh, and I'm not quite sure myself. Uh, so we definitely had that. But I think others can uh, get uh, have the similar types of experience. Or you don't have to be in these big firms to have great experiences, for sure. Uh, did we have an advantage? Sure. But for sure, and I think whether it was Justice Myers or others, uh, the mentoring is crucial. And, and uh, you, uh, people have to seek out help. They have to talk through their problems. Uh, it's, and I, like, I still seek mentoring myself because I'm now on my own. Uh, you get into difficult problems quickly and you need help. I'll give an example. Uh, uh, I'll give an example. In my first year of practice, I was in my office talking to a lawyer on the other side. And after the phone call, the lawyer on the other side, who was like a 30-year lawyer, like somebody like me now, writes me a letter and says all the things we just agreed to on the phone call. And I was like, wow, I'm shocked because we never agreed to anything. Like I, and so is now I got this letter saying what I had agreed to first year like in my first or second year month of work and all this nonsense that we had not agreed to and so literally I had to take that and luckily I was had somebody at the time it was Bill Carter 
uh, a senior litigator going, this is what just happened to me, right? And if you're on your own and somebody's doing that and people, there's so much crap that people do. Uh, and so, so in a big firm, you get the support like that. And then Bill had to dig it out. And, and uh, in the end, it wasn't a problem, but anyway, it's, it's just an example of where you need help all the time. Like it's a, it's a very litig, well, we're t so we're litigators and litigation is tough. It can be really tough. It's not just from the other side, it can be people uh, competing with you for similar work. There's just, it's, it's a, it can be very stressful. So you need a support network. Uh, and and if, if for staying in large firms like I did for so long, you know you have a huge support network. The, the people in the firm are your friends, mostly. And, and you, uh, you just have a great experience. If you're on your own, you don't have that. So you have to build it somehow. And, and you know, you're meeting people through these interviews, I guess. You, you, and, and through other ways, like you could tell from these interviews that you've done that you, you, you're very uh, multifaceted in how you reach out and, and learn and, and, uh, from people. Uh, so that was handed to me on a platter, Colette. I agree with that. It's totally handed. And, and working with Dennis O'Connor, like that's a dream, right? Uh, so, but you, you, if you don't have that, you just have to make it for yourself uh, and like you're doing, or like a lot of, there's incredible people uh, coming to law school and they have, uh, they, they have different resources now uh, than we, what we would have had in the eighties. So what, uh, like we obviously we didn't have the internet at that point. <laughs> Absolutely. So, they, so, so I agree with you. Things are totally different now, uh, but uh, it, it, uh, people can have to do similar things. I still, uh, I do mentor other people as well. Still, uh, I'm a mentor for uh, New College for people, uh, prospective people going into law school. Uh, I've done that for many years. Uh, and so, yeah, it works both ways. Uh, but, but even at my stage, you still need help. Uh, you, you still need help sometimes. And so like, I, obviously I can call up just about anybody and get help, but uh, anyway. I'm curious what kind of help you might need at your stage. Maybe I can help you because I think my uh, uh, tenure of being a sole practitioner is longer than yours. <laughs> yeah, the, um, well, I've, I've done five years now, but yeah, uh, the, I do, uh, the older you get, you get more and more personal litigation issues, and whether it's estate issues or or house issues or property issues, but you get more issues. So that uh, I try to litigate them myself to some degree, but often you need help. So that's one area where you say, "Well, this is happening, and I think you're doing such and such. What do you think?" Right, uh, and the. The, there's endless areas like you know yourself how difficult it is to, 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 to just file materials <laughs> like I, I actually have pretty good knowledge of stuff like that but how to get a motion scheduled and, and basic things could just be such a pain so uh, anyway uh, there's definitely areas where you need help or just moral support from time to time. 
Well, you can count on me for that anytime. Okay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so you said that litigation is hard, and I certainly agree with you. I've been doing this for more than 10 years. I think it gets easier with time, but definitely it was very hard in the beginning. Uh, would you say that class actions is the hardest type of litigation? Not at all. Not at all. Uh, class actions may be one of the easier areas because we have a very collegial expert bar uh, and we have an expert uh, judiciary uh, with excellent judges. We have um, like support teams, conferences, and there's so there's tremendous support uh, for uh, class actions. They are not they are not difficult really. Uh, and it's it's a great atmosphere generally. So I have done enough other litigation to know the answer to your question. Uh, the toughest area probably is is uh, leaving aside criminal, which I've never done, uh, is injunction type of work where there's really serious issue that needs to be dealt with now. And, and but there are lots of tough areas, any kind of commercial litigation. If you've got a tough, tough opponent who's not acting reasonably, which is often the case. Uh, uh, so no, class actions is, is, a, is a, a, a wonderful area to work in uh, it, on both sides. It's quite complete. I do defense work. I still do defense work. I've always done more or less all defense work. Uh, and so it's a completely different practice on the plaintiff side, but obviously we have excellent relations, or at least I do, or perceive that I do with plaintiffs, with all plaintiffs counsel across the country. Uh, but it, it, yeah, it's a, it's a very nice area to, and a comfortable area to work in. My practice has shifted, Pulat, because like since I left BLG, I've, I've, I'm now working with other teams of lawyers. Like I still work with teams of lawyers, but mm -hmm. the teams are, are either at BLG or, or at another firm. Uh, I'm doing a lot more consulting work on class actions. So the strategy, strategy kind of work. There, I'm involved in class actions where I'm not uh, counsel of record in any way, but have, have a pivotal role, I would say, in the class action. Uh, would you say that defense work and class actions is not for upstarts, that you need a, a strong reputation and uh, strong relationships with defendants to enter this space? Probably, yes. Um, like it, for, to, for, for me to enter it, it needed the, in, we had the institutional clients. And you get, uh, you, so that you get repeat work. Um, and that's how I ended up doing the hospital defense, uh, because, uh, uh through, through a reciprocal. So, uh, so I've been counseled for years, uh, to HEROC, uh, which is a health insurance reciprocal. And through that, we, we get work defending hospitals on class actions. It's incredible work, great client, uh, and really interesting a lot of times policy-oriented work. How do you get into that kind of defense, like really uh, unbelievable work, 
uh, if starting on your own. I, I don't know how you could do it. Now, there are some people developing niche areas where they have a niche expertise. And I could imagine, you know, whether it's, it's in cryptocurrency or some new topic where I think people, in theory, you could develop an expertise and then you will get retained, but it would be hard. I definitely came at this from institutional clients, whether it's the banks, the pharma companies, uh, uh, or the or the hospital defense. Uh, I did a lot of pension class actions, for example. Like, am I really act for the Bank of Canada? Am I going to act for the Bank of Canada if I'm a sole practitioner? No way, right? Like realistically. So, so I think the answer to your question, I don't really remember what the question was, but I think it was probably not that you. Yeah. Provided. But, but it would be very hard to do. Yeah, the question was if defense work and class actions is for upstarts, and it's probably not. Uh, are there any parallels between insurance defense and class actions defense? Um, well, a lot of class action defense is insurance defense. Uh, and so in defending class... <laughs> the one thing that I should have learned a lot more at law school was insurance law, first of all, but it, whether you're doing litigation generally or class actions in particular, you are worried about insurance issues all the time. And it affects, it affects the defense. Uh, and so, so you, you've got the class action going on and then you've got how you're dealing with the insurers. You may have to report to insurers. You, so there's a whole insurance angle to all of the work uh, that I have ever done and continue to do. Um, what was the question? Whether it, it's different. Parallels between insurance defense and class actions defense. There, there's lots of parallels because, because it, uh, a, a lot of times in a class action, the only money you're going to have to pay a claim is from the insurer. Like the, the, so you may have a bankrupt client and, and the money may be coming from the insurer. And so... Uh, there are definitely parallels. Of course, a lot of targets of class actions are large transnational corporations. So class actions involve transnational issues. Sometimes there is a parallel class action in the U.S. I guess this is one thing that Canadian class action uh, lawyers have to contend with is they have to keep an eye on what's going on in the U.S., is this a fair uh, sort of uh, look at the situation? How important are transnational issues? Uh, is it dominated by the US? Is the transnational perspective dominated by what's going on south of the border? Or do uh, class actions lawyers also keep an eye on Europe or Asia? Uh, mostly the US. Uh, there, there's a, a good solid class action practice in Australia. Uh, and a, a kind of a developing practice in England, but uh, the U.S. dominates. And, and as you say, basically the, the claims uh, largely originate in the U.S. and then copycat claims are issued in Canada. So it really can kind of split out the class actions in Canada. There's a huge portion, probably a half, let's just say a half to start by default that are purely copying what happened in the US. You will get verbatim pleadings of claims from the US that don't even exist in Canada, at least at the moment. 
and, and particularly claims that have been settled in the US because if a defendant has settled in the US, odds are plaintiff counsel believe they're gonna pay something in Canada. It's a, it's a pretty good business model to follow. There are, in addition, uh, there are homegrown Canadian class actions, there are examples. Uh, sometimes they are province specific. And so my hospital work, for example, was usually not international. I, I've been involved in lots of cross-border class actions, uh, but the hospital work, as an example, is a, an example of a local, uh, you may have a, a, what we call a bad, a bad doctor in a hospital and doing the wrong thing over and over again. And so that leads to a class action against the hospital. That's a local issue. Quite different uh, questions come up in those cases from the, uh, the US style uh, uh, parrot or copycat claims. I'd like to talk about the recent case uh, that Justice Myers decided. Uh, it, uh, it was heard on January 12, uh, 2022. So this year, just a few days ago. And uh, uh, the case is called um, Green and CIBC. So this, this is a motion to approve a settlement of, the, of a class action against CIBC. And the class action had to do with the subprime uh, mortgage default and CIBC disclosure to shareholders in connection with that. I believe it was brought by, on behalf of uh, a class of CIBC shareholders and uh, some salient uh, points are that the settlement was, I believe for, if I'm not mistaken, $450 million, right? And the class council requested approval of their fee in the amount of uh, 37.5 million, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, there is a long decision, and uh, as uh, usual, uh, Justice Myers, in his um, no nonsense, straightforward style, very honest, very direct, I think. He uh, teaches us a lot about class actions and what's going on behind the scenes. He talks a lot about personal exposure of, of plaintiffs, uh, counsel to uh, financial risks to costs. What is your take on this decision? You tweeted about it a few days ago. Right, so um, th there are a number of interesting aspects. There, the, um, the first thing is that uh, Justice Myers, I think he was initially going to be the, the trial judge, and then something happened, and then he ended up being a pretrial, or, or he was going to be a, 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 the judge leading up to the trial. And he basically appears to have settled this case at a pretrial conference. And so one of the issues, in, and then he's the, uh, the approval judge, so one of the issues he wrestles with uh, is, is whether he, as the uh, a, uh, kind of mediation judge, so to speak, should also be the approval judge. And he concludes that he that's fine for him to do that. So I don't have a problem with that. Um, a, a, a second big issue and the main issue in that case uh, on settlement approval is whether you get a kind of flat contingent fee uh, of 30% on recovery. So 
they claimed four billion dollars and they got 150 million or whatever which 125 was, actually okay, i'm, I'm whatever. sorry i have to yeah, correct myself. 125 yeah. and and they wanted 30 percent. so so if, uh so that's how they got to, i guess the 37.5 and so there's a theory out there that if you once you go over certain thresholds, your 10 million or 50 million, your percentage should go down and you shouldn't get 30%. Particularly, this case was going up as close to trial, like they've been going on for 12 years or so. Anyway, he decided that they could get the uh, 30%. Uh, he toyed with the idea whether it should be reduced in some form. And then he, he kind of said, well, it's, tri it's, it's trivial because if I reduce it, it's still this amount. There's no principal basis to uh, reduce it from 30%. So there's a, actually a divide between our uh, class action specialist judges on this point, uh, because Justice Bellababa has uh, released decisions kind of more doing the, the tiering approach. There's no right or wrong, uh, but this is interesting because um, Justice Myers, as you brought out in your uh, interview, has, has a tremendous litigation background. He was at Goodman's. Uh, so he's a very knowledgeable judge. Um, maybe he's not a class action judge, but he's not a, not a, he's, he's, he's an expert judge coming at this. And so it's kind of a big deal for the class action bar. And that's the only reason I put the tweet out that to get 30% on, on 125 or uh, whatever the final amount is. Um, there, there is a question in my mind about how much money is actually going to the class in that case. There's always an issue about uh, what the recovery is going to be for the shareholders and how you actually find these shareholders at this point in time. There's all kinds of issues on this kind of litigation. Um, and, and so how that ties into the fee issue is some judges say you should to really look at what the real recovery for the class is after the fact, after those claims process has been completed before you really decide how much class counsel should get. Anyway, it's a great decision for, for plaintiff's counsel uh, and in, in, uh, whether, whether it will ultimately be followed, uh, like this is, I think this is done. I should say I have nothing to do with this case whatsoever, um, but, uh, it's an issue the court of appeal will ultimately have to rest with. I have to say that for a long time in other provinces uh, from, from really including Newfoundland, Labrador, for example, uh, they have applied a similar approach. So if, even if it was a big amount, they would give the 30% is pretty standard. So uh, it's, it's a well-reasoned, uh, careful, thoughtful, decision from Justice Myers uh, and and as you say anybody interested in class actions should uh, would be willing to read that Justice Myers writes in his decision that uh, in the plaintiff's counsel retainer agreement the fee was I think the higher of 30 percent and four times the dockets Right. So the, the four times the dockets concept is of interest to me can you explain that and what the basis for that is well, so it's a, a multiplier or a, and so the <laughs> four times dockets is just uh, what dockets they've kept over the years. The problem with dockets for class counsel 
on the plaintiff side is that their dockets are not paid. And so as defense counsel, we dock it, we bail, it gets paid. We can show the client actually paid that amount. And maybe it was a discount, maybe a discount amount, but you could show exactly what uh, was paid by the client over a long period of time. The dockets of plaintiff counsel are, don't, don't have the same discipline, let's put it that way. Uh, and so the, they over 12 years, they had docketed time of, you've got the decision uh, obviously in front of you, I don't, but the, they, were, they had 15,000 hours or so, they, they recorded some, 10, like 10 or 15,000 hours, I believe. And then they multiply that by their rates uh, to come up with a docketed time. And then they say that we shouldn't get more than four times this. Uh, that uh, in the U.S., they do apply uh, kind of a dual approach where they, they look at the docketed time and generally they have a multiplier of two to three times the docketed time. The th okay, the theory is this, Poulet, that if you take a bunch of cases as class counsel, half of them are going to fail. Half of them are going to get nothing. So the other half, you better get at least twice your docketed time. And so... Uh, and on the theory that class counsel only take cases that have a better than 50% chance of winning, for example. And so the four times docket would be to set a, a cap. I think we shouldn't have more than that. Uh, but in, in, it's, in, in our practice, the docketed time isn't, it's, it's sometimes looked at, but not very carefully. Honestly, looking more at a contingent fee and, uh, uh, and, and kind of, there have been examples where judges have tried to reduce it. Justice Myers quotes um, Chief Justice of Ontario Stravi uh, and another decision who uh, uh, said this about the principles at play in uh, approving class council fees. Uh, Justice Strade wrote, I also recognize the public interest in ensuring that parties pursuing secondary market misrepresentation claims that are certified and passed successfully through the statutorily mandated judicial screening process are fairly compensated by realistic cost awards. This is an access to justice issue. These claims are suitable for class action treatment because no individual class member would take on the risks involved in pursuing individual litigation. The ability of the class to pursue these claims depends on the willingness of class counsel to accept the very substantial risks in exchange for the potential rewards. The risks are quite simply the exposure to substantial personal liability for costs and the risk of receiving no compensation for the time and disbursements invested in the case. There is no funding agreement in this case, but the latter risk exists even where there is a funding agreement to indemnify class counsel for an adverse costs award or for some portion of their disbursements. The efficacy of the statutory remedy depends on incentivizing class counsel to take these formidable risks. Defense counsel do not face these risks. They are well paid and rightly so. They no doubt bill on an interim basis as they are entitled to do. 
and their clients will likely spare no expense in attempting to shut down the proceeding at the initial stages. So I'm curious about this last part. Uh, defendants will spare no expense in attempting to shut down the proceeding at the initial stages. I think this is the approach that you will be familiar with as a defense counsel. And of course, defendants that we're talking about here are huge institutional defendants. What is your take on this view by the judiciary that class actions defendants will spare no expense in attempting to shut down the proceeding at the initial stages? Is it in the interest of justice that this is allowed to happen? Or is there nothing wrong with, uh, with that scorched earth approach? Um, yeah, I'm, I don't like the scorched earth approach and this, um, this is a very difficult area, Pula. There, there's a lot of different ways of practicing. And uh, some lawyers, uh, class action lawyers, develop a reputation of essentially being a scorched earth uh, counsel. Um, and so if you have that reputation, does it mean you're more likely to get retained or less likely to re get retained? You know, you do develop it. And so the institutions know these lawyers, uh, plaintiff's counsel know them. Uh, it dramatically increases the cost of defense. When, uh, when we started with class actions, I was really at the beginning of time with class actions and, and right at the start. Um, it was never even remotely contemplated that a certification motion would cost a million dollars or more to defend and it just wasn't it wouldn't have been in anybody's mind whatsoever and so uh the, there's a lot of ways of approaching your question but i'm very troubled by some behavior by some defense counsel uh and it's extremely hard for the judges to even know what's going on uh, and to rein in, uh, you could ask plaintiff's counsel and they'll tell you who, the, who these people are. Uh, but it, it can have a self-serving effect. So if you are a, a particular institution and you, some people will look for these lawyers and will only hire them. And, and so, is it in the interest of justice? Not at all. Uh, so going back to the going back to the particular case, and I, again, I don't, I'm not involved in the case, never been involved in the case. Uh, but I know the firm Rocho Genova who run it. it. It was always a small firm. Like that's not a big firm, and how they had the resources to run that case is beyond me. I and and so when I left BLG, I thought about doing plaintiff class actions. And I would not uh, think of taking on a case like that. <clears throat> so they, they did take on a case uh, that required extraordinary resources against a, uh, a bank, which is known to uh, uh, defend uh, with vigor, let's put it that way. 
And so, so, and they, there's a discussion in the Justice Myers decision about how it was putting the firm at risk. They usually don't want to talk about that, but I have no doubt about that, that that firm was constantly looking at the risk of this single case, like a single case uh, to the firm. And so, so uh, nobody, like people want to be more diversified in the risk. These class action firms want to have at least 10 or 15 or 20 cases running. So they diversify the risk. So no, it's, it's a serious problem to have, uh, to be faced with scorched earth defense. Ontario recently passed some amendments to the class actions regime in the province. I think the certification test was uh, changed, brought more in line with with the American version. I have a couple of interviews. I think I did a couple of interviews last year about that. Do you think the class actions regime in Ontario is where it should be right now? No, no, not at all. Um, so they introduced uh, superiority and predominance as requirements for to advance a class action. This knocks out the personal injury product liability cases, brings it in harmony with US more. Um, so, and I, I'm in favor of class actions. I think they do a lot of good, generally speaking. There's some abuse, but generally class actions are a good thing. Uh, and these amendments have brought us out of harmony with other provinces, particularly BC. So, so since the amendments came in in October of 2020, uh, the uh, claims in, in Ontario have, have fallen and claims in BC are skyrocketing. People are moving to the degree you have claims like you talked about with the transnational or, or at least national claims, you're gonna run it out of BC where they have a no cost regime and, and you don't face this cost exposure that Rochelle and Geneva uh, had. So uh, there, uh, I, I, there were a number of submissions made to, <clears throat> to, to reach the result uh, that the government uh, did, but basically Ontario is out of whack with the uh, rest of the country. This is not a popular uh, view amongst defense counsel, but I, I've never been of the view that Ontario should be a cost regime. Uh, I, don't, I don't see how practically a plaintiff with a small claim can be faced with the cost exposure. And it, it's, it ended up creating endless artifices uh, where, where <clears throat> the, the class counsel have to take on the risk or it has to be sent over to the fund. In the case you mentioned, the fund actually, the class proceedings fund did actually did eventually provide funding and some some uh, expo uh, liability exposure uh, protection. But anyway, I would be in favor of a no cost uh, regime in Ontario and and really across the country. Uh, most provinces have no costs or have cost levels that are. Uh, are really irrelevant, like their tariff costs. And so that the major impediment to class actions in Ontario is the cost regime because we are faced with the cost and like what crazy plaintiff wants to advance a claim? Like you have to be, you, you, 
it, it makes no sense. There's an irrationality in, in having a cost regime. So the, when they add, they didn't change the cost regime, obviously. Uh, and and they've, they've made it more difficult to certify the, the uh, personal injury cases. It probably hasn't had any impact on economic loss cases and securities cases, little, little to no impact. Uh, so if the question is, does Glassful favor that? No, I, I would favor something closer to BC. Uh, and there, there may need to be balancing mechanisms uh, to, to not have abuse. But anyway, if you have a cost regime, then the defense, you're going to get some defense counsel are going to run up the costs as, as, as a way of, of uh, uh, discouraging claims. I mean, it's, it's a known thing that if you settle a class action, you're more likely to get sued again, right? So, so the defense, the defendant who settles early and easy gets sued again. And so there's always a balancing uh, on the class, uh, on, the, uh, as, on the defense side of, of whether you settle or you spend money to defend. Barry, this has been fascinating. I really love following you on Twitter. I love reading your commentary. I learned so much about class actions from you and uh, from other class actions lawyers on Twitter. I am thankful to you for sharing your deep expertise and experience on Twitter and here in this interview. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Barry. Okay, thank you very much. Okay. Uh